All right, if you'd like to open up to Hebrews chapter 10, Hebrews 10, and we'll be in verse number 36 to begin with, and we won't be there for long. By the grace of God, I plan to move around quite a bit today in the scripture. And uh, many of you, all of you should have the outline uh, was handed to you as you came into church today, so you can see that sermon today is called Patient Parenting. Patient Parenting. Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 36. And we'll begin just by reading, as you can see on the outline, part A of that verse. So just the first few words is all I'm looking for. Hebrews 10, 36. The Bible says, For ye have need of patience. That's all I need. That's my jumping off spot, amen. That's my diving board to get into the sermon. And certainly in every aspect, in every area of life, this portion of the scripture rings true, right? There's, when is it not appropriate that we have a need of patience? But today we're gonna focus our attention on how patience is so vitally important in the area of parenting. So if you would bow your heads with me, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you for this privilege today. We get to open up the word of God. We get to learn some things about being a, a parent, especially about patience. And Father, I believe that this can speak to more hearts than just those of parents. So please, God, as the word goes out, let it fall onto good ground and let it accomplish that which you please. Lord, as we heard in the hour before, I, I wanna be a spirit-led, spirit-filled preacher this morning. Please help me, get me out of the way. Use me simply as a vessel, meet for your use. We ask it in Jesus' name, amen, amen. I've given you a couple thoughts on your outline just underneath the, the text for the sermon this morning. Can I just draw your attention to that momentarily? I've written here, raising children might be the most involved responsibility under the sun. I'm sure you might debate that to a certain extent. Maybe there's some other jobs or tasks or careers that uh, are very involved, and I don't doubt that. But parenthood arguably is the most involved responsibility there is. It requires, therefore, one of the most elusive attributes known to mankind, and that is patience, right? The book of James says, let patience have her perfect work that you may be perfect and entire, wanting nothing, lacking nothing. So in other words, once you've finally achieved the attribute of patience, you've kind of capped it off. Once you've achieved that, now you're able to learn and grasp so many other things because if you think about it, what in life, when it comes to learning something, what comes really quickly? Most of the things worth learning takes time. So without patience, you're not going to be able to learn all of those very important things. So today we're gonna talk about patient parenting. As I grew up, I had a few people that made massive impacts in my life. I remember the first teacher that really shaped my thinking as far as the future was concerned was in 10th grade. I had a history teacher named Mrs. McLean. And Mrs. McLean, she, she brought history to life. It, I loved going to her class, not just because she would throw us illegal pizza parties. <laughs> I scared her so bad one day. I came into the class a little bit late and I said, Miss McLean, the principal's right around the corner. She went, oh no, everybody hide the pizza. Now she was in her 70s. <laughs> she was about to have a heart attack. I didn't think that through very well. 
And I said, she just panicked because she would be in big trouble if, she, you know, the principal caught this, these pizza boxes in there. I said, oh, no, 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 I'm just kidding. She said, Mark, sit down. I said, okay, never again will I tell that joke. That was bad. But she, when she talked about history, she just had that twinkle in her eye. She loved it, and her love for history kind of got transferred to the whole class, but especially to me. Ever since that class, I'm just enthralled by, by history. I only had her class for one year, just 10th grade. So she shaped my life, but only for that one year. A little bit later in life, I, I moved. That was in Texas. I moved to Missouri, and as I uh, got started there in a new high school, I started, of course, with the new basketball team. And the coach there was a man named uh, Coach Cookson, Steve Cookson. And this man, he had me for two years. I was, I was uh, on his team, and my goodness, he put me through the ringer, but he cared about me. He ran me hard, and he rebuked me hard. During some half times, he would grab me by my love handles. Does everybody know what those are? Is that a South African thing too? It's not, we don't just have love handles in America, right? <laughs> you have them here. I think we manufacture them in America, but I think you have a few here. He grabbed me by the little bit of love handle I had at that time, because much skinnier then, and picked me up off the ground and pinned me against the wall and say, Flick! And then in front of the whole team, tell me what I was doing wrong. Now, he loved me. <laughs> I think. <laughs> at least that's what he said after the game, right? But he would, he would have me over to his house, let me sleep at his house because, you know, logistics, we live so far away. He really did put a lot of time and energy into me, into my life, not just on the court, but off the court. And he did shape my life. From Mrs. McLean, I wanted to be a history teacher. From Coach Cookson, I wanted to coach basketball. And as I graduated in and had a little bit of direction in life, those are the two things I wanted to do. I wanted to teach in a school, teach history, and coach basketball. Now, shortly thereafter, I got saved. And obviously, all of my goals and dreams changed at that time. I surrendered those things to the Lord and let Him call me to do what He wanted me to do. When you know it, in, in our Bible school, I teach church history. And since living in Malawi, I got to teach, or I got to coach a, a high school, or I'm sorry, a college basketball team. I became the national head coach of the entire country, and then I came here and coached in university. So God certainly does give us the desires of our heart. But after I went to Bible school, I sat under Dr. Ruckman for three years. And I think more than any other teacher, any other authority figure in my life to that point, he shaped, God used him to shape my life. Now just think of this, one year with Miss McLean, two years with Coach Cookson, three years with Dr. Ruckman, and they really did add so much and changed the direction of my life in so many positive ways. Now let's talk about parenting. That's just one, two, maybe three years. When it comes to parenting, you have plus minus 18 years. Miss McLean, she saw me through one very short phase of life, 10th grade. <laughs> Coach Cookson saw me going from being an adolescent, a young adolescent to a young adult, just two years of my life. Dr. Ruckman, from going, I was newly saved until I was prepared for the mission field as much as I could be at that time. Just one little phase of life, but as a parent, you get to see your children through so many different phases. And let's be honest, we have some opas and omas in the room today. Parenting doesn't stop when they move out, does it? Our, our hearts are still moving about with them. Obviously, the way we interact with them changes, yes? Yes? I think, I think it does. <laughs> it has for us anyway. But 
the opportunity to still have an impact and make a difference in their life, that never stops. So that being said, because parenting is such a marathon, it's not a one, two, or three-year sprint, it is such a marathon, it's a lifelong endeavor, you're going to have to grasp the concept of patience in a big way. At the bottom of the outline, I've given you a, a quick little quote there. Patience is often bitter, but its fruit is sweet. It's often bitter. In the moment, it is very difficult. One other person said, patience is simply knowing how to mask your impatience. <laughs> I don't know if I agree with that 100%. I think patience should be deep down in your heart. But many times, that's how it works, right? We, we can feel ourselves wanting to overreact to something, and you've got to, for the sake of that person you're uh, parenting, you've got to pull that back in. Now, as it pertains to parenting as a whole, this subject is too vast. There is no way you can discuss all the necessary things about parenting in one lesson, maybe even one year's worth of lessons. But what I wanna do today is go to the greatest teacher on anything we're ever gonna find. I recently gave you some advice that if you're, if you're struggling with any area of life, study the life of Christ and you will find outstanding the best wisdom available from him, from watching his example. Now you might you know, initially think, how can this work? Because when it comes to parenting, Jesus didn't have a wife. He didn't have biological children. So what could we possibly learn from him about parenting? Jesus did say a couple things about parenting. I mean, directly from his mouth. And we could obviously look at those things, study those things. However, I'm going to take you to several different places. I think we're how he interacted with his disciples and with the people around him are going to give us some great tips on this specific point about being patient in parenting. Now, in case you're here this morning, you say, I'm not a parent, or I'm out, I, that phase of life now is gone. I'm, I'm not, that's not my stage of life. I'm moved on to a different stage. Directly, I may not be speaking to you, but indirectly, I really hope you stay tuned in because... As we're studying, trying to learn some things from Christ about parenting, you're also gonna be seeing how Jesus interacted with his disciples, and I hope today that all of you here are one of his disciples. And I believe that there's something you can learn from those lessons, if nothing else. So would you please turn with me in John chapter one. John chapter one. <clears throat> Right, John chapter one, and I'd like to bring you to verse number 47, and the, if you wanna fill this out on your outline, the first thing we'll talk about <clears throat> is patient with learning. Patient with learning. Let's read a few verses here. John one, verse number 47. The Bible says, Jesus saw Nathanael coming to him and saith of him, behold, an Israelite indeed in whom is no guile. So he's, Nathaniel is one of those guys that if he has something on his mind, he's gonna tell you exactly what he thinks. He's very straightforward. Uh, he's not trying to trick you. There's no ulterior motives. And we can appreciate a person like this. You know, little children are often like that. Little children have a very difficult time uh, disguising their feelings, right? And I, it, it, no, come on, isn't that true? You don't even have to be a parent to know that's true. If they're upset, they make sure everybody in the vicinity knows it, <laughs> right? Your neighbors know that they're upset because they do not hide anything. If it's on their mind, they say it. 
Moms, you can be in the kitchen for hours and hours cooking that meal. You put the food, that hard, all that hard work on that food, you put it on the table, that kid takes one bite and says, bah, ew, uh, I don't want to eat it, it's horrible. He doesn't care about your feelings. <laughs> he doesn't care that you put in all that hard work, no guile. Now, do you see, I know this is about Nathaniel and he's a grown man. I'm looking for tips on parenting and how Jesus would interact with potentially a child. So verse 48, Nathanael saith unto him, whence knowest thou me? Jesus answered and said unto him, before that Philip called thee, when thou wast under the fig tree, I saw thee. Now obviously Nathanael thought he was all alone and was all alone out by that fig tree, just off in his own little world. Jesus, because he has this divine side to him, knows that Nathanael is out by that fig tree and was undoubtedly able to know something humanly unknowable. And this really impressed Nathanael. I remember one time when I was maybe, what, 15, 16, must have been 14. I got hired by a politician. I was on summer break in Missouri out at my grandpa's farm. This politician came to the house and said, son, I'll pay you $10 if you hand out my voter cards at the poll where, you know, where they do the voting. I said, I'd love to. I didn't realize it was on the backside of a mountain, nothing around it but just trees and some little log cabin. That was it. It was the most boring day of my life. So as a 14-year-old, bored, nobody watching, I decided to practice my ninja skills. <laughs> so I found a tree, <laughs> and for the next couple hours, hiya, <laughs> hiya, I did every move imaginable. <laughs> I would jump so high and try these fancy spin kicks and land flat on my backside. <laughs> I mean, it was horrible. I didn't know anybody was watching until after the voting was done, that politician came out and said, here's your money. And by the way, that was some really good karate. <laughs> Now, that was just a very human observation. He could see me from inside the building. I didn't know anybody was watching. Nathaniel's under that fig tree, and he has no idea. There is nobody around. That's why it was so impressive to him. You can see his reaction in verse 49. Nathaniel answered and saith unto him, Rabbi, thou art the Son of God. Thou art the King of Israel. Easily impressed. Now, rightfully impressed. Okay, this is a proper reaction because no way that a human could have known this so this immediately, Nathaniel goes to the extreme and says, you've got to be the Messiah. That's the only explanation. You are the son of God. You're the one we've been waiting for. Easily impressed. Verse 50, Jesus answered and said unto him, because I said unto thee, I saw thee under the fig tree. Believest thou? Thou shalt see greater things than these. See, man, I just did, I showed you one little glimpse of my divine nature. And if that impresses you, Nathaniel, we're just getting started. I have not even begun to teach you everything that you could possibly know about me or about life. Verse 51, he saith unto him, Verily, verily, I say unto you, Hereafter ye shall see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending upon the Son of Man. And for the longest time, I've interpreted that to be maybe the resurrection some people would say this is the ascension of Christ as he went back to heaven. I think we might actually be dealing with the second coming of Christ here because that is something that Jesus would go on to speak about, teach about, and one day he said that we, his disciples, we will see this. Heaven open and Jesus coming and the angels moving up and down with him. So I think what Jesus is getting at is, Nathaniel, we have just started with the learning. 
There's so many other things I want to teach you. You have no idea what you will eventually come to know. I want you to notice one word in verse 51, the word hereafter, hereafter. Parents, as you raise your children, just know that there will be a hereafter. You don't need to teach them everything in one day. You don't need to teach them everything by the time they're 12. By the time they get teenagers, do not think that they're done learning, even though they'll tell you they are. <laughs> right? Like one dad said, I, I got to take my 14-year-old to NASA because he knows everything. <laughs> he can straighten NASA out. He can straighten out the governments in the world. He knows everything. They don't. You still need to, to teach them. And listen, it might become a little more uh, difficult, but it's it's going to require you to be more and more patient and just know that the job of teaching them is not going to be done. You still have this opportunity to download information, share experience with them. Jesus did this for three and a half years. He taught them. Now listen, he stood and he gave them the theoretical teaching. He, he explained to them, this is how you ought to live. This is what you need to know about God. This is how God feels about these particular parts of your life. This is how you hurt the heart of God when you disappoint him. All of that Jesus explained to them. He explained how to interact with God, how to interact with man. But I believe the greatest thing that Jesus did to teach his disciples was not only to say it, but to live it in front of them. He lived it out. I've given you a verse or two down uh, below on the outline. In Mark chapter three, verse 14, the Bible says he ordained 12 that they should be with him. Do you see that? That they should be with him and that he might send them forth to preach. Before Jesus sent these 12 apostles into the ministry, the first thing was here, you come be with me. Moms and dads, make sure that you have time in the schedule for those little ones to be with you, to watch you live, not just life, but a godly life. And then when you say, listen, this is how it ought to be done. Don't do these things. They know that it's so. They know that it works because they've seen you living it. The Apostle Paul in Philippians 2, verse 22, just below there on the paper, speaks uh, of, of Timothy. But you know the proof of him, of Timothy, that as a son with the Father, he hath served me in the gospel. What does he mean as a son with the Father? Because everywhere Paul went, Timothy was right there next to him, saying, let me see what you're doing. Let me see what you're doing. Let me watch. Let me learn. Be patient in learning because as they watch, it's going to take time, but oh, do they see things. They see so many things. They pick up on the slightest things. They look at how you're holding your face while you do it. It's not just what you do. It's the attitude with which you do it. Be patient. Be patient that doing it right, living out the Bible is going to make an impact on their life. They may not show it in one day or in one year and five years. It may take them 25 years to finally look back and go, you know what? Here I am 25, 30 years old and miserable. But when I think back to how my ma and how my pa conducted themselves, had a happy marriage, they, you know, even though they went through tough times and had a lot going on, they seemed so happy. They had such joy. What made the difference? They should be able to look back and go, you know what? I keep remembering mom and dad telling me if I did it the Bible way, things would turn out better. That if I would just walk in the light of the Lord, things would walk, that they'd work out better. The Bible promises up, train up a child in the way he should go and when he is old, he will not depart from it. You're familiar with this verse, yes? 
Moms and dads, don't we know this verse? Train up a child in the way he should go, and when he is old, he won't depart from it. It might take a while before the lessons finally sink in. Wait a minute, that's the right way to go about it. Be patient, be patient. They'll eventually get it. I don't know if you've ever noticed this as you read through. Sorry, this earpiece is slipping a bit. As you read through the book of Matthew, I I always chuckle when I go through this part. In Matthew 14, you have the story where Jesus feeds the 5,000. We're all familiar with that, right? There's 5,000 men, not counting women and children. So there's maybe 15, 20,000 people there. But we know it as the story of him feeding the 5,000. Now, what did Jesus do there? He went to the disciples and said, hey, guys, how are we going to feed all these people? What was the response? Well, 200 penny worth is not sufficient to feed everybody. He said, how much do you have? Five loaves, two fishes, bring it here. Watch this. He prays over it. God, please bless this bread. Multiply it, feed the folks. Amen. Then he hands it to the disciples and they start distributing. What happens? It multiplies. The more they give, the more they get, the more they give, the more they get. And by the time they're done, they have 12 baskets full, right? We're all familiar with the story. Don't you wish that's how it worked with your paycheck? (laughs) God, here's my paycheck. <laughs> now I'm going to give a little. Now you just bring it in and give a little. G- <laughs> you know what happens in the next chapter? Ma- that's Matthew 14. Matthew 15, Jesus is teaching a crowd. Thousands of people gathered before him, 4,000 this time, 4,000 men. And Jesus says, they've been with me for several days and they haven't eaten. I don't want to send them away fasting. So guys, uh, what do you think? How do we do it? And they said, Duh, Jesus, uh, this is a desert place. There's no uh, uh, shop right or checkers nearby. So uh, yeah, we don't know. What are we going to do? Really? Really? You don't remember just one chapter ago where we went through the same? Really? If, now, I, we have the benefit of hindsight, right? To say, how did you not learn this? If I were in that situation, I'd probably do exactly what the disciples did and give a very human, uh, limited answer. But they said, yeah, we don't know. And Jesus said, all right, bring, bring the bread. And he takes seven loaves this time and multiplies it and feeds the entire multitude. Now, if you're one of the disciples, right, by the end of that second miracle, you're gathering up the baskets that are left over because there were leftovers. You, if you're one of the disciples coming with the leftovers, you gotta have your head down going, sorry, Jesus, sorry, 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 sorry. We should have known. We should have known the answer to sorry, 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 right? Isn't that how life is? Tw- hindsight is twenty twenty. After you've gone through it, you go, man, I should have known that. That's why you gotta be patient with yourself as you're learning, as you're growing as a Christian, and also patient, especially with your children. Give them the benefit of hindsight. Let them grow up a little bit and look back and they'll see, ah, should have known that. You know what's really bad, though? That's Matthew 15. Matthew 16. Just a few verses later, Jesus tells the disciples, get in a boat, let's go to the other side. And he says, hey, guys, uh, just I want to tell you something. Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Now, you know leaven, that goes in bread. You know what the disciples did? They went, oh, no, he warned us about the leaven. Uh, it's because we don't have any bread. That's why he's warned us about this. Really, guys, you really think that Jesus is concerned because there's no bread after he just multiplied it twice for thousands of people and now you're only 12 in the boat? Come on, man, you can't be concerned. You can't think that what Jesus just said is about a lack of physical bread, but they did. And Jesus, he turns to him and he says, guys, listen to me. How many baskets uh, of leftovers did you have from the 5,000 crowd? 
12, and from the 4,000 crowd, seven. He says, so you really think I have trouble multiplying bread? No. <laughs> you know what Jesus was? Patient. Patient while they learned. He says, guys, I'm not talking about leaven of physical bread. The leaven I'm talking about is the false teaching of the Pharisees and Sadducees. And they went, oh. These aha moments, these, when the light, you know, light bulb, bunk. <laughs> When the light bulb finally goes on, who knows how long that's gonna take? Whether we're talking about you as a Christian or you as a parent, be patient. Let your kids have time to let those facts sink in. Uh, turn your Bible to John chapter 16. John chapter 16. John 16, verse number 12. Jesus is just about to leave the earth now. He's on his way to the cross. There's just a, a few hours actually before he's going to be arrested. And he has a few final words for the disciples. He's, he tells them in verse 7, if I can just quickly bring your attention to that. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, verse 7, it is expedient for you that I go away. Moms and dads, eventually there comes a time when it's actually better for the kids to move on. They can't be at home forever. I'm saying that because as a parent who has said goodbye now to two of our children, saying goodbye is very difficult. And the temptation is to just grab on and say, please don't leave. You care, and you say that with all the right intentions. You care about them and you love them. But at a certain point, it becomes necessary for you and that child to put a little distance between them. Not that you're not a part of their life, right? When Jesus went back to heaven, was he still a part of their lives? Absolutely but the dynamics of that relationship changed. Now for you younger parents, take advantage of the time that you have with them under your roof. Cherish every moment. Grab onto every memory. Make them as sweet as they possibly can be because you don't wanna to get to the other side, to the other uh, phase of life and look back and go, shame, I should have done more. Do as much as you can. He says in verse 12, I have yet many things to say unto you, but ye cannot bear them now. Patient with their learning. He says, guys, I'd like to teach you a lot more, but it's not that Jesus wasn't able to communicate it. He says, but ye cannot bear them now. They can only take so much new information at one time. Now, do you see as a new Christian, right, in your Christian walk how this is applicable? Don't think that you have to figure everything out as a Christian overnight. It's gonna take time, but parents, remember this with your children. Not even Jesus could teach his disciples everything they needed to know by the time they moved out. He says, after you guys move out and you get out into Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the earth, I'm still going to be connected with you, but it's gonna be a little different. Verse 13, Howbeit, when he, the spirit of truth, has come, he will guide you into all truth, for he shall not speak of himself, but whatsoever he shall hear, that shall he speak, and he will show you things to come. Moms and dads, your kids are gonna continue to learn, just like you've continued to learn. You, as a parent, right, don't we learn on the job? We learn as we go. But then even at this stage of life, I'm still learning new things, still trying to become more like Christ in every way. And so is the same thing with your kids. It's gonna take time. Don't try to rush this process. The only thing, experience is the best teacher, and there's only one way to get experience, and that's to go through stuff. 
they're going to have to have that opportunity. Even into the book of Acts, Jesus is still teaching them lessons, not physically there with them via the Holy Spirit, but they're still learning. So be patient. Be patient. Your kids will eventually get it. I think the one thing Jesus taught the disciples that really helped them the most moving on later in their lives is this. And listen to this part. He taught them how to have a humble, soft, hungry, teachable spirit. I'm going to say that again because I want you parents to hear it, but I also want everybody here, if you're a Christian, I want you to hear this. Having a humble, soft, hungry, teachable heart. That is such a valuable commodity. If you can instill that into your children to be teachable, then as they go through life, they're going to progress very nicely. The second thing I'd like to point out to you, they're patient with learning, but also number two, patient with mistakes. Patient with mistakes. Would you turn your Bibles to Luke chapter 22, please? Luke chapter 22. Now, I think patient with learning and patient with mistakes goes pretty much hand in hand. You might even see this as one point. If you're like me, most of the learning I've done has come through my mistakes, right? Not all learning has to come from a mistake, but often it is from our mistakes that we do mature the most. But Jesus was very patient with his disciples' mistakes. Moms and dads, can I just give you this word of admonition Try not to overreact when booty or sissy makes a mistake. You made them. And, and guess what? They're going to make those mistakes again. Maybe not the same one, but some of those mistakes, right? Some mistakes are going to be repeated. They're your kids. They're following in your footsteps. Some mistakes are going to happen. Try not to overreact. Try not to get so upset that you discourage them and make them think that because of this mistake, there's no point in even trying again. When they make a mistake, you have an opportunity to show them just how profitable a mistake can be. You can sit them down and patiently reprove them. Tell them what they did wrong. Listen to this. Tell them what they did wrong. Somebody needs to tell them what they did wrong lest they grow up and get into politics and think everything they say is right. Amen, preacher. That's good preaching. I know it. Tell them that they've made a mistake and then don't let it stop there. Teach them how to correct that mistake. And don't stop there. Help them physically go through it with them. Walk the path with them and say, this is how you handle this, not the way you did it, like this. Reprove them, teach them, correct them, and then reassure them that you love them. And say, even though this mistake has happened, I want you to know you're still just as precious to me as you were before. And I am no farther away from you now than before the mistake. I'll never leave you. I'll never forsake you. Even on your worst day, I'm still here for you. I'll always be here to support you. Mistakes are a very profitable opportunity. Do not overreact. Do not push them away. Notice how Jesus handles the disciples. Luke 22, let's begin reading at verse number 24. Patient with mistakes. Now, do you know the context? Jesus is just about to go to the cross. He's just about to walk into the Garden of Gethsemane. Do you understand how much pressure is on Jesus right here? Hey, dads, moms, do you have any deadlines that are currently putting a lot of pressure on you? 
You have some responsibilities at work or elsewhere that are really weighing you down and maybe stressing you out. Okay, Jesus has the weight of the sins of the world that are just about to bear down on him. I think this is the very definition of an anxious situation. Look at how he handles it. Verse 24, and there was also a strife among them, which of them should be accounted the greatest. And he said unto them, the kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and they that exercise authority upon them are called benefactors. But ye shall not be so. But he that is greatest among you, let him be as the younger, and he that is chief as he that doth serve. He is just about to go to the cross and die for the sins of all mankind. And what are the disciples doing? I'm better than you. No, I'm better than you. I'm the greatest. No, I'm the greatest, but I did more miracles, but I led more people to Christ, but I... Really? They're having this childish debate hours before the cross? Is this in any way acceptable? Now, this is how you know that I'm not completely conformed to the image of Christ. I would not have handled it as well as Jesus. <laughs> I would have flown off the handle right here and said, you bunch of knuckleheads, shut up. I'm about to go and die on the cross and you're arguing about this nonsense? Are you guys serious? Three and a half years you've been walking with me and you're still arguing about who's the greatest, who's the greatest. Now see, that's me. If I'm in the flesh, that's how I handle it. <laughs> Not Jesus. He says, guys, listen, you're acting like Gentiles. Amongst us, this is how we do it. The, the least, right, the chief is he that doth serve. Verse 27, for whether is greater, he that sitteth at meat or he that serveth. Is not he that sitteth at meat, but I am among you as he that serveth. Because they had just had the Last Supper and all that, so he had just given that example. Verse 28, ye are they which have continued with me in my temptations. It says, you guys have seen me go through some tough things. You have seen me when I had an opportunity to exercise authority. I could have just wiped out the multitude that was against me, but rather I chose to have the attitude of a servant. He said, you guys, you've stuck with me all this way. Now look at what he says in verse 29. I appoint unto you a kingdom as my father hath appointed unto me. Do you see how his reproof turned into an encouragement? Jesus did not overreact to their immaturity. He straightened them out, but then also encouraged them to say, guys, even though this is certainly not good behavior, certainly not the right attitude, I don't think this disqualifies you from being used by God. Jesus kept the big picture in view. This is one mistake in a life that you could be serving God with, and one mistake you can learn from. You can build on that. Jesus did not, as the proverb says, throw the baby out with the bathwater. I think this is also evident in the life of Peter. In John chapter 13, we have a story where Jesus says, I'm going away, and not too long from now, all of you guys are gonna forsake me and flee. And Jesus, or Peter says, ooh, wait a minute. You're, you're saying that we are going to forsake you? No. Jesus, I'm ready to go to prison. I'm ready to die for you. Jesus says, Peter, calm down. Calm down, man. You're all excited and bless your heart. I know that's, that's, haven't you ever seen your kids get all excited about something? They just know, oh, I can do it, I can do it. Ooh, calm down, booty, calm down. <laughs> and then, I, I can do it, Jesus. I can go to prison. I can die for you. I can stand for you. And Jesus says, no, actually, you're gonna deny me three times. Can you imagine Peter's, the look on his face when he heard that? No, no, I'll die for you. You'll deny me. I'll, I'll what? 
I'm going to, I'm going to, what? What happened? Hours later, hours later, here come the soldiers, here comes a little girl, here comes a man, he's warming himself by the fire. Hey, you were with that, uh, that, uh, that Jesus guy. Oh, not me, not me. Mm-mm. That's kids, right? One day they're fired up about this, the next moment they're fired up about that. <laughs> not me, I don't know this guy. Another little girl comes, hey, I know you. You were with that Jesus guy. I do not know him. Then another guy comes and says, yeah, you sound like a Galilean. Mm-hmm. I'm almost positive. Yep, you're one of the main guys, aren't you? And then he begins to cuss and swear because if you want to prove you're not a Christian, you cuss. He says, blankety blank, I am not one of his followers. I know him not. And it was right about that time, Jesus is standing there at that mock trial and Jesus, people are slapping him, ripping his beard out. Jesus looks over and sees Peter afar off in the courtyard and catches eyes with him. And Peter looks in there and he sees Jesus looking at him and the Bible says Peter breaks down weeping bitterly and he runs off. Jesus didn't, he didn't have to say a word. Jesus didn't have to overreact. He didn't have to lift his voice. He just had to give him that look. Dads, do you have that look perfected? Moms, surely you've got that figured out, right? Right? You can just look at that child. You don't have to say anything, just mm-hmm. And that child knows, ooh, this is it. Don't go any farther. She stopped talking. <laughs> you know it's bad when she has nothing left to say. That's all Jesus had to do. He didn't overreact, just catching eyes with Peter. What happens a few days later after the resurrection, they're out there having a men's breakfast on the shore. Jesus cooks some fish and has some bread. He pulls Peter aside privately and says, hey, Peter, come here, man. You love me? Yeah, I love you, Lord. You know I love you. Hey, Peter, you love me? Lord, yeah, I just said it. Yes, of course I love you. Hey, Peter, you love me? Peter hung his head and said, Jesus, you know I love you. He said, all right, I know it. I know it. Just want you to say it out loud so you know it. Now, Peter, I want you to feed my lambs. I want you to feed my sheep. Come here. Follow me. I'm not done with you yet. He was patient with mistakes. He didn't overreact even when somebody went as far as to cuss and deny him. He said, yep, even though that was a pretty big one, I'm not done training this young man yet. That was a tough mistake, but I believe I can love him through this thing. I I remember years ago when we started off in Malawi, the first pastor I trained, his name was Ashbad. And Ashbad, he was, I'd done one baptism uh, with the church. I baptized about 20 people down in a, I think you guys would call it a stream. In America, we call it a creek. It was a disaster. When I put the people under the water, they came up going, ah, ah, my eyes, my eyes. The water was horrible. <laughs> I didn't know it. So the next baptism we had, we did it, it, we borrowed the Church of the Nazarene, had a nice building right down the road from us. And so we borrowed theirs and they had a nice little baptistry. But Malawians are generally very short people, very short, like, like here-ish. And the baptistry was not very long. So it's fine as long as the average size Malawian is in the baptistry. You put them down, you bring them up, and all is well, and off they go. But, you know, I did a few baptisms in that baptistry, but then my assistant wanted to do some. 
And Ashbad had led this older man to Christ. Now, the average age of the Malawians, or Malawian population is 41 when I moved there. 41 is the average age. This guy was in his early 70s. So this is like the Methuselah of Malawi. I mean, this guy is old. His name was Mr. Mweso. I even asked Ashbad yesterday to make sure I got the name right. And uh, Mr. Mweso has now gone to be with the Lord, but... <laughs> Ashbad led him to Christ and he was discipling this man. This man wanted to get baptized. Now, Mueso was older, or he was an older man, which made him unique, but also he's very tall. He was taller than me, about between me and Garrett, right? So we're talking 1.9-ish, somewhere in there. He was tall. And uh, we didn't see that all the time. So I told Ashbad, when you baptize him, please be careful because he's so tall, when you lower him down, he is going to knock his head on the side of, you know, on the cement on the side, and we don't want anybody going to be with Jesus during the baptism, right? That's just not good. So he said, ah, no problem, but I, I got it, I got it, I understand. I said, okay, good. And right when Mr. Moise was coming up, I said, Ashbed, Ashbed, don't forget, he's tall. Don't, don't bump. He said, okay, no, no, I got it, I got it, it's okay. Shut I said, okay, all right, just checking. He gets him in the water. He says everything. Yeah, I'm going to baptize Father, Son, Holy Spirit. I said, Ashbad, very tall, one tally. He said, yeah, yeah, it's okay. Okay, I baptize you now in the name of the Father. Pop! <laughs> so, <laughs> the whole church could hear that man's head crack on the semen. <laughs> I was standing to the side going, oh, no, I told him not to do it. Ah, oh, poor Ashbad. All Ashbad could do was crack. Hey, Holy Spirit. <laughs> he brought him back up. <laughs> Father, Son, Holy Spirit. <laughs> uh, I'll never forget that. He brought him up, and poor Mr. Mueso, we had to have two guys help him out of the baptistry because he was doing, he was wobbly. He had a big knot on the back of his head. Bless his heart, he was fine. He, he turned out okay. He died of something else, right? Not, not, not of that. And since that time, we built our own baptistry in our own building, and we built it really big, right? So that will never happen again. But Ashbad never bonked another head. Now, could you imagine if I said, Ashbad, I told you, I, I warned you three times not to do that. How could you make that mistake? Ashbad, that's it. No more baptisms for you. Do you know that man has baptized not hundreds, thousands of people that he's led to Christ? That mistake, even though it was a silly mistake to make after me warning him again and again, standing right there warning him, how could he do that? Because he's human, just like your kids. And just because, just because they've made a mistake here, there, and maybe, maybe several times doesn't mean they're not worth your time and effort. Christian, you say, I've messed up on the Lord so many times. I've failed him so many times. Doesn't mean he's done with you. You'd be surprised how much he might be able to use you if you'll just let him. One last thing I'd like to share with you if you turn in, in your Bibles, John chapter 2. John chapter 2, verse number 23. John 2, verse 23. Patient with success. That's point three. Patient with learning, patient with mistakes, patient with success. Now, you might be slightly confused by this last point just by hearing it. What, what do you mean patient with success? 
You mean I need to be patient until my children become successful? Well, yes, I mean, that, that would be true. They're not going to be successful just overnight. But can I challenge all of you today to maybe reconsider your definition of what success is? Right, because sometimes we, we prepare our kids for a certain version of success, the world's version of success, but the world's interpretation of that and God's interpretation of success are very different things. Now, please prepare them so that they can function in the world, that they can hold a job, nothing wrong with making money, nothing wrong with being successful, getting promoted. All of that stuff is fine, right? To have aspirations like that, no problems. But make sure that your children know there's more to life than just career advancement. That your, the size of your savings account does not define you. Make sure they know what success is. Make sure you know what it is. So in my previous point, don't overreact to their mistakes. I'm gonna go to the other side of the coin now. Don't overreact to their successes. They do something right. This is not the time for you to say, oh, you did one thing right. You just can't do wrong. That's not the case. In John chapter 2, verse 23, Jesus has done a miracle so, and he's doing some miracles right now. He, he's at the Feast of the Passover, but he just recently did the changing of the water to wine. Verse 23, now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover in the feast day, many believed in his name when they saw the miracles, which he did. But Jesus did not commit himself unto them because he knew all men. Did they make the right choice to believe on Jesus based on the miracles? Yes, they're all fired up. They got all this zeal. This is exciting. We're on board. You know, kids will, kids will often follow whatever is exciting in the moment. And once the excitement wears off, they will look for something else to get excited about. They don't care how important that thing was, right? Have you ever seen them get excited about a particular school subject? Ooh, I get to do this science experiment. You know, the volcano gets to spew out this. Oh, this is exciting. <laughs> And then when they have to read 50 pages in the science textbook, give me something else to do, right? That's life. Now, if I can just shift a little bit, just a little more general for a moment, you know, a lot of Christians are the same way. They get saved, this is exciting, this is all new. Then once the excitement wears off, they, their attention trails off and they're no longer faithful to the things of God. Be sure that you're not doing it just because you're excited. Make sure you understand how important these things are. Jesus did not commit himself to them because he knew all men. He knew that people are fickle and that dedication is more than just standing up and making a profession to say, this guy's great, I believe him. Look at what he can do. You need to be a little bit more informed before you make such a proclamation. Verse 25, and needed not that any man should testify, uh, that any should testify of man, for he knew what was in man. Parents, we should know that within our children, there is the potential, right? There's the potential to do great things. And we should affirm that. We should try to cultivate that, absolutely. But we should also realize that just because they've done a few things right, we, we might put them on such a pedestal, we're setting them up for failure. We have to understand what's the potential in them also. to They might get puffed up in their own minds and get a bit proud. And the Bible says that pride comes before a fall. You can potentially puff that child up so much that they think, I can't do wrong. 
I've heard parents say this, and no doubt you've heard it as well. They will not criticize, they will not rebuke or reprove or even try to correct their children because they say, I don't want to damage his self-confidence. I don't want to subtract from his self-image. What about telling him the truth? How about speaking the truth in love? Which, which means telling him he may, you might have to break the news to him or her that the world does not revolve around him. Now, do you see how you can balance this by also telling them, listen, I love you more than words could possibly say. And I think so highly of you, I see all the potential in you that you could imagine, but you're also human. And various pitfalls and temptations, they can get you just like they can get anybody. So be aware of it. This way you're preparing them for the realities of life. They might grow up in the utopia of your home and when they step one foot outside of the protection of your home and get out into a university or into the workplace, all of a sudden truth and reality grabs them and says, wait a minute, the world's not nearly the place I thought it was. My boss, my prof doesn't worship the ground I walk on. And when I do one thing right, I don't have a standing ovation every time. Matter of fact, I can do one, I can do 10, I can do 100 things right. I don't get a raise, I don't get any recognition. Everybody just kind of ignores it. Now, moms and dads, I'm not saying treat them like that at home, but prepare them for such a reality. Be patient with their successes. Can I ask you to turn to Luke chapter 10? I think you'll see in this passage and throughout the life of Christ, there's a great balance in his interaction with the disciples. When they do something right, he tells them. He affirms that good behavior. You, you don't have to ignore those things. Even though the world might, Jesus affirms their, their service. He acknowledges that. He tells them one day you'll have a, a, an inheritance in the kingdom. Yet at the same time, when they've done something wrong, he's also able gently to point that out and sometimes even more strongly if the situation requires it. There's a great balance. Luke 10 verse 17. The 70 returned again with joy saying, Lord, even the devils are subject unto us through thy name. Now, are they right to be excited by this? Sure. What's wrong with that? I mean, listen, if you could do that, if you could just go through town and recognize an unclean spirit working in somebody, pray over them and see that unclean spirit leave, you'd be excited too. So we're not gonna fault them for being excited. Verse 18, he said unto them, I beheld Satan as lightning fall from heaven. He said, man, guys, what you're seeing on a small scale, I've seen on a big scale. I've, I've seen the, the granddaddy of this happen. Verse 19, Behold, I give you power to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall by any means hurt you. Do you see how this is encouraging? How it is affirming? Saying, listen, guys, you, there's a lot of potential in you, but there's also something you need to learn. Verse 20, notwithstanding, in this rejoice not. Don't let, the, don't let this, the fact that you're able to do these great es exploits, don't let that be the main source of your joy. In this rejoice not that the spirits are subject unto you, but rather rejoice because your names are written in heaven. What's the difference? The difference is this. I'm not gonna rejoice 
The source of my joy is not what I'm doing for God. The source of my joy is what He's done for me. Because day to day, right, the amount you're able to do for God is going to change. Now, listen, we should always strive to do as much as we can, but the reality is we're not always going to be able to do the same things for God every single day. And if that is the source of your joy, you're going to have a very rocky life. But if you want to have a stable foundation with a, a steady stream of joy flowing through your life, then rejoice in that your name is written in heaven. What's that? That you're born again, your name appears in the book of life. That is not what you've done for God. That's what God has done for you. He's saying, guys, it's wonderful that you're able to do these things, but God is the one that gave you the power to do these things to begin with, and the reason God gave you these abilities is because you are in his family, you are his children, your names are in that blessed book of life. Now, get to the source of where the joy should be coming from. Teaching your kids what real success is. What is it? What is the greatest thing that anybody in this world can achieve? I'm giving you a moment to come up with that answer in your mind before I tell you what I believe the Bible, the Bible would answer this, the way the Bible would answer this. The greatest achievement that you can, that you can grab onto is having a real, genuine relationship with God. If there's anything worth your time and effort, young person, old person, moms and dads teaching your kids, teaching them how to relate to God, teaching them what God thinks about them, what God has done for them, there is no greater achievement. Moms and dads bring them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. Not just we need to do these things for God, but this is why we do these things for God, because God has done these things for us. We love him because he first loved us. Explaining to them that overwhelming and never-ending love of God, if you can give them that as a foundation for their life, you have truly achieved something. Be patient with their success. The fact that they can do some things right, that they've learned some things, wonderful. But remind them that there's more to learn about God. Keep growing. Stay humble. Stay soft-hearted. Let God continue to well up in your heart unto everlasting life. Let's all stand, if you would, please. Let's have our heads bowed and eyes closed for a few moments. We've talked now about patient parenting. This is not the kind of sermon that I expect to see fruit from right away. Because even if you put these things to use right away, it's going to take time before the fruit of it will be manifest. Patience is often bitter, but the fruit is sweet. I have told my kids so many times, this is how it ought to be. <sighs> Unfortunately, it just doesn't always sink in as fast as we'd like. So I've watched my kid make this mistake so many times. Well, keep lovingly helping him or her. Be there for him. But don't give up hope just because they've made some mistakes. Maybe they're not living the way God wants them to. Be patient. 
See, my children are on the right path. I'm so excited. I'm so proud of them. Amen. Rejoice in that, but don't let, don't let that be the whole picture. Make sure you explain re- the reality of the situation. There's something bigger than just worldly success. Prepare your kids to have a successful relationship with God. Before I close, I'm just going to remind you of this. It's very difficult to teach your children how to walk with God if you, sir, if you, ma'am, are not walking with God. If your name has never been written in the book of life, if you've never been born again, how can you explain to your kids how they can have their name in that book? There's only one way that you get your name written in that book to receive Jesus Christ as your Savior. He is eternal life. If you've never done that, please let this be the day that you turn to Him in faith and say, God, I've messed up, but thank you for not giving up on me. Thank you for making salvation possible through your Son. I don't want to trust myself anymore. I'm going to trust you. I'm going to trust what you did for me. That's what salvation is. It's not what you do for God. It's what God's done for you. Maybe today you need to accept that. Put your trust in that. Father, thank you this morning. What a privilege to be able to dedicate children to you and then also to talk about this important attribute of parenting. Lord, when it comes to patience, none of us have enough of it. Lord, you said there we have need of patience. We believe it. Help us, God, to be long-suffering like you are. And Lord, I pray especially for the moms and dads in this congregation. Help them to take seriously and joyfully the privilege of raising the kids that you've blessed them with. Lord, bless the baptism that's about to happen the rest of our day. We seek to please you, to learn more about you. We ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.